In this episode, you'll be hearing from Jean Wolves. For reference, this episode was recorded on November 10th, 2021. So let me tell you a little bit about Jean. She's a former middle school teacher, department chair, school leader, and college instructor, and is the founder of the New Teacher Masterminds, a transformational virtual PLC network that connects, empowers, and provides wraparound support for new teachers across the country. As a new teacher herself, she won the Outstanding Beginning Teaching Award from the Illinois Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. Jean's mission is to help new teachers thrive during their first years of teaching so they feel they can stay and grow in the profession for years to come. I'm so excited for you to hear from Jean. Let's dive into the episode. I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Jean Wolf, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. And I'd, I'd love to just get your thoughts on, you know, I just read your professional bio, but I think sometimes there's like this element of professionalism to bios that you kind of miss the personal <laughs> aspect or, you know, you want to ground yeah. yourself in something other than like the, the list of things that we've accomplished. So mm-hmm. I love asking the question of, you know, how do you want to add to that formal intro and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, uh, I love that you're asking this question because I also agree. I'm, I'm the biggest preacher that you are more than a teacher. <laughs> Um, and more than your accomplishments. So I think just some more personal things about me. I, I love to travel. Um, we're actually going to go on this RV adventure this winter um, for a few months. And also that I am a mom of an almost two-year-old, which is crazy to think, but that takes up a lot of my brain most of the time as well. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And as a fellow traveler, I feel like that is an important distinction to make. Like there is something about travelers who are like, let's go do stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. So as we think about kind of your dream for education and we kind of lay the foundation for the episode around what education would look like, you know, if you could kind of create it. Um, I love Dr. Patina Love's quote about freedom dreaming. And she says Mm -hmm. there are dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. And so through that lens, thinking about the big dream you hold for the field of education, how would you describe that for our listeners? Yeah, I, I think my dream for education is for every new teacher to experience their first few years as a cherished and important role and person and agent in education and equity in education. And in order for that to happen, for all schools to have induction programs for new teachers that are designed and sober to the challenges that all new teachers face um, and are designed to keep their vision and their passion intact, which is so important. And I just feel so often overlooked, but it doesn't need to be. 
Yeah. That idea of keeping your vision and passion intact is I think what is often the cause of people leaving the profession after three to five years, right? Like that almost happened to me just have being in these different school systems that were not what I envisioned teaching to be and did not give me the level of autonomy and support that I needed. And I almost quit teaching Mm -hmm. after three years and, and just completely tried a new profession. (laughs) So yeah. And that could have been solved very easily. Well, maybe not very easily, but it could have been solved. And it's something I think we need to pay attention to if we want teachers to be staying in the profession. Absolutely. And, and so I'm curious to know, because oftentimes we don't solve that, right? We don't do those things. So what are the ways that educational leaders maybe need to be thinking a little bit differently or even teachers need to be thinking a little bit differently and really Mm -hmm. shift their mindset around, you know, what those first few years of teaching look like and what supports for those teachers in their initial years look like. Yeah. So the first one and the biggest one, I think the most foundational one, and this is something that I say to new teachers all the time, but now I'm really speaking to veteran teachers and building leaders. And that is tossing out this assumption that your first few years of teaching have to be miserable. Like if we're assuming that, then what supports, like, what's the point of supporting new teachers? So instead of that, the mindset shift I really want to challenge everyone listening to make is how can we create the first few years or make the first few years of teaching the best years of a teacher's career? Like, how can we aim for that? And just think about how much that shifts the conversation um, and and the kinds of supports that we need to enact and the kinds of experiences we want to give our first few, our first second, third year teachers in our buildings. Um, So that's the biggest one. And I have another one, but I didn't know if you wanted to. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's hear it. So the second one, um, and and it's kind of building off of this, is that teacher support needs to go beyond just best practice. We know with students, if they are not um, in an emotionally stable state, or if they're not getting their basic needs met, that they can't learn. And it's the same thing with teachers and especially with new teachers. Um, Your first few years teaching, you're going through challenges that are not just professionally challenging, but they are emotionally taxing. And they are also, you're also going through a huge identity shift. And I think if you've been a teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a huge identity shift. It's almost I actually think now being a new parent, it's very similar to becoming a new parent. Like it's, it's just a giant shift and you're coming against a lot of challenges. And so we need to be designing programs that take that into account, predict it, and then provide support for teachers. I love that. Oh my gosh. Not only the assumption, the first one around assuming that the years are going to be miserable. I think that's really a powerful thing to shift away from, but also that idea that that identity shift is so real, whether you're new to the career as your first career or like a career changer or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, seeing yourself as a teacher is, is a really interesting shift. And I love that you likened it to parenthood as well, because I think people appreciate that shift a bit more than they do that of a teacher and what it means to be a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many people, usually teachers very often when they become a teacher, this is something they've been dreaming about or thinking about for a really long time. And so when they're starting teaching, they're trying to figure out, okay, one, am I going to be a good teacher? Am I going to be good at this thing that I've dreamt of doing? Am I going to be this teacher that I've always wanted to be? And then two, is this for me? Like this is kind of their trial run. And so um, 
yeah, I think it's just really important to think about. And I think too, when I'm thinking about identity shift, I'm also thinking about like, just speaking from my own experience. Um, when I, when I became a teacher, I had been used to being a high achiever, good at things, organized, prepared. And now for the first time in my career, essentially, I'd just been a student before that, but in my career, I wasn't feeling organized. I was feeling chaos all the time, no matter how hard I worked. I was feeling like a failure. I was feeling all these things. Even if we're thinking about the equity piece, I'd always thought of myself as a very accepting person, of course, not a racist. And all of a sudden I had students telling me I was a racist. I never, ever experienced that before. And that happens many, many times for teachers. And so, I mean, across the board for, for new teachers. And so these are things that we all kind of know, I think are very common for new teachers to be going through. Um, and since we all know them, I think we need to be, you know, thinking about them and, and how we're supporting new teachers. So powerful that you just shared all of that. Thank you for speaking to your experience, because I think so many people just resonated with all the things that you shared because it is real. And to avoid thinking about those things that we do know happen, right? It's just yeah. not a good way to support teachers. And so yeah. if people are listening, thinking, okay, yeah, like I want to create the conditions for someone to feel really supported and like they're thriving at work and they know how to navigate that identity shift. What does that look like in terms of, you know, brave actions for educational leaders to take or even teachers themselves to take to really live into that, that dream you were describing? Yeah, so I'm going to really highly paraphrase um, some research and teacher retention um, by Ingersoll. I think Richard Ingersoll. I'm pretty sure that's his name. Ingersoll, definitely the last name. Um, and he he's done extensive research, I think, over the last 30 years on what keeps teachers in buildings, what keeps them in the profession. And the things that he notices in terms of teacher induction programs is the more elements of kind of best practice for induction programs that are that exist in a program, the more likely teachers are to stay. So those elements are things like a mentor program, um, things like having professional development workshops, maybe having, um, uh, I'm forgetting the other one, there's one other one. Professional development workshops, oh, and strong instructional coaching and, um, and the mentorship program. But the one thing that I always think about that really stands out for me that he lists that I very seldom see in schools and would have been amazing for myself as a new teacher, and I know for so many new teachers that I work with, that is a lightened workload. I mean, again, this makes sense. Like when we say it out loud, it's like, well, duh. Like <laughs> we have new teachers that are expected to do everything a veteran teacher is doing. And yet we, it, they are also learning the ropes. They're learning how to do this. I mean, anytime you're learning anything, it's going to take longer. So um, light, it makes sense why light and workloads can be so powerful for new teachers in terms of keeping them in buildings and keeping them um, in the profession. So that's the first one. And I, real, and I say that also right away because I know that's probably one that feels lofty um, because it messes with <laughs> the magical master schedule. <laughs> but I think it's something, a conversation that needs to be had. And even if you are not a principal in your building, you, if you are working with new teachers, I'm challenging you to, to talk to your administration, talk to um, upper administration about how can you make this happen for the new positions that you're hiring for so that new teachers have the space to grow, to process all these things, to learn their skills, to get all this support. Um, and I think also 
I'm spending so much time on this first one too, because in order to add the other things I'm gonna suggest, teachers need to carve out and have space for those support programs. I've worked with amazing, amazing supportive districts for new teachers that give them more things to do, more things to do, more things to do, but they don't take anything off those plates. So they're meeting with a mentor every single week. Awesome. They're meeting with masterminds every single week. Awesome. Like it's all these things, but teachers are super overwhelmed because they don't have any time to do their job. So you want to have the both worlds. You want the light and workload so they can still be getting, you know, doing rubber hits the road um, and learning how to do this job as they go. But you also want to carve out that space for them to get the support that they need. Um, and then thinking about the kinds of support that I have seen that new teachers really, really benefit from. Um, one is access to a safe space to ask for help um, from veterans and peer teachers. That veteran piece, because they have a lot of expertise and wisdom to bring to the table, but also peers, other first-year teachers, second-year, third-year teachers who can empathize with them and say, hey, it's totally normal that what you're going through, I'm going through that too. Um, and having that camaraderie and feeling like they're not the only one feeling like a failure or they're not the only one feeling like this is just a lot more than they thought it was going to be or something like that. Um, and then the other piece to that access to a safe space, um, the mastermind groups I run, I really wanted to create a space for teachers who are connecting across building and even across districts. And the reason I wanted to create those space in these mastermind groups where teachers were talking to people outside their building is because even if you have the safest political culture in your building, a new teacher may not even know that. So like best case scenario, nobody gossips, nobody's going to go behind the new teacher's back. But the new teacher, if they're smart, knows not to trust that that's the case in a building. So they may not feel comfortable to open up with, um, with their mentor teacher, with the teacher next to them that could help them or even with their instructional coach. So the more that you can connect new teachers outside of your building, I think the better so that they have um, a safe space to feel like they can be vulnerable to get help on the things that they're actually struggling with. Um, and that's personally why I think mastermind groups are so awesome because you can create these safe family environments where you're working to um, create a safe space throughout the year that people feel more and more comfortable being vulnerable. Um, and I, and I think that's what's really, really needed to help new teachers feel comfortable to open up. And then even if it's not a mastermind group, just a space that's specifically designed to be safe for new teachers. Um, and then the next one, so lighten loads, access to a safe space to ask for help. And then the third one would be workshops and coaching, coaching that helps to help, uh, that works to help new teachers, um, process these high emotional challenges these identity shifts, and on top of, of course, like basic skills and things like that, but, but workshops that also address this more affective aspect of teaching. I think it would be awesome if all teachers had a therapist. I, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think it would be great, um, but I think there are a lot of other ways to support teachers on that kind of emotional and identity journey than therapy um, that, that schools can provide their teachers. So um, workshops that help teachers become aware of their biases and to process those. Um, I know that I would have so benefited from that as a new teacher rather than struggling with this on my own when I knew that so many other teachers were also struggling with this, but it was just kind of a taboo thing to talk about. Um, and then uh, the second thing for workshops and coaching, I think, is, is helping teachers process this, all of the shoulds 
that they brought to teaching. My kids should be listening to me while I'm talking. I should be able to get through my grading stack, you know, when I get home at night and not feel tired. I should be, um, I should be designing these lessons that are super engaging every single day and then confronting what's actually happening in your classroom. Maybe they're tired and they didn't get an awesome lesson plan that day, or maybe they're, they have a class that is a little bit chatty right now and they have to be working through that. And like, it's a very normal thing, but a lot of new teachers don't realize it's a very normal thing to be working through during the year. So, um, or maybe even something that they could harness and use to their, to, to their, as an asset in their classroom when they're, as they're teaching. So workshops that work with those shoulds and like confronting what it is that, um, how they can work with what reality really is in front of them. And, um, and then I think another, another piece on, on helping teachers confront uh, their vision versus what they are perceiving as reality in their classroom and in the contrast between those. I think this is a really key place and a really pivotal moment for teachers in their journey to become anti-bias, anti-racist educators, because so often this is the moment where teachers fork. They say, okay, students are not being X, Y, and Z that I expect them to be either. I need to learn how to do this in a different way, or it's just these kids, like these kids can't do this, or this school isn't like this. I need to go to a different school or something like that. So I think this is a key part of equity in education is, is coaching new teachers through that dissonance that they're going to experience their first year and their expectations and what's actually happening. Okay, so then the final thing I would say, the concrete thing I think the new teachers need and um, lots and lots and lots of is targeted instruction and culture for making the job sustainable. So my first institute day, um, when I was a student teacher, I'm so lucky that this was my first, it was the first seminar of my first institute day. It was led by this amazing teacher who I actually worked down the hall from when I was student teaching. And it was a workshop on how to save time grading. And she started the workshop by saying, okay, let's think about like how many students you have, 120. Let's think about if you spent five minutes grading every single one of those papers, how many hours would you spend grading? And I think it was something, I can't remember, 10 hours, I'm not gonna do that math like that, something really crazy. And so she said, every minute that you add on to your grading for every single paper is going to be another two hours of your life. So let's think about like, what is the, the highest power move that we can make as teachers, rather than spending 10 hours grading this paper that students may not look at, what, how could we spend those 10 hours in a different way? Or how can I spend those 10 hours to rejuvenate myself? And so that Institute day, I mean, it was gold advice, but it also framed the way that I thought about teaching from then on, because this was my first impression of like, okay, teacher community, this is what we're talking about with each other. But I had yet to like go to another workshop like that. It was just a really awesome workshop this first time. And so I think we need so much more of that for new teachers. And again, it goes along with this bucking this assumption that your first few years have to be miserable. Um, because again, I think a lot of times we don't give new teachers these things because we're like, oh, you know, your first year, it's gonna suck. You're going to be here until eight at night. I remember those days kind of thing. Um, again, a lot of similarities to new parenthood, what you hear. Um, and so having, having a culture where, no, this is not how it's going to be for you, not even you, new teacher. And we're going to, we're going to help you learn how to do this job more efficiently, more powerfully, more meaningfully. 
Um, I was listening to I, a one of your podcast episodes. It was Dr. Sweet. I don't remember her first name, but I loved what she was talking about in encouraging joy and passion outside of your teacher day. And then also challenging a workaholic, building culture. I think just, if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. I'm just going to echo it. I think it's super important. And I think it's especially important for our new teachers who are forming the impression of what teaching is and if it's for them. Yeah, those are the things I would recommend. <laughs> that was a lot. Wow, that was a lot, but it was so good. I mean, I just, I was nodding my head the entire time you were speaking. So I just think about, you know, lightened loads. I constantly am trying to talk to leaders about how do we take something off of people's plates, right? We can't just keep adding. And I love that you center that around new teachers, right? Particularly new teachers reflecting on what I taught. Like I taught seven completely different classes as a first year teacher. Like that's nuts. That's nuts even for a veteran teacher. And often it's because, I mean, for me, I was jumping at the first job that I was offered because I, I was just like, yeah, well, otherwise I'm not teaching. And then I'm kicked out of my program and then I don't have anywhere to live. And, you know, there's this spiral of, I don't even know how to interview. (laughs) So I think thinking about how do we make sure that that is sustainable? Because ultimately if we're investing all of this time and energy and resources into building up new teachers who are going to stay with us for a while, because we have great culture and we have that space for coaching and we have all the workshops you've been talking about, you know, that's going to pay off for us as a school as well as for the students in those classes, right? A lot of times I think teachers who are new get the, t- the students who need the most support and probably would benefit from a veteran teacher who has all this experience. And so we're yeah. constantly challenging new teachers in ways that you know don't, don't need to be the case, right? And so I love your first Institute day, just thinking about that framing of how else can we spend our time versus spending 10 minutes, you know, a paper or whatever, on grading and giving feedback that might not even be looked at. And so thinking about ways to make the work sustainable, I just want to echo is so critical because if we burn teachers out, (laughs) we are not going to get anywhere and we're just going to be spinning our wheels. And that culture building process just kind of stagnates when we have people running out the door constantly. And I just, I want to say that this list is brilliant. And I hope people like replay that section of the episode because it is so, so good. I, I, I just want to like uh, empathize with what you're saying as a first year teacher having seven classes. I was given four class, four preps, three different grade levels of writing. It was a core class, but somehow I was like the cog that fit in, you know, like all the empty gaps in the master schedule kind of thing. And I got the job probably why, are they, my position was open probably for the same reason yours was because nobody, no other veteran teacher wanted it with reason. I don't blame them. Um, but I would argue that that needs to go back to reworking the master schedule. How can we make a humane schedule for everybody? But it's not okay if one of our team members is getting this totally unreasonable load. Um, and it's especially not okay if it's going to be one of our new teachers And I think it's especially, especially not okay if it's one of our new teachers that we think very highly of. I think a lot of times that's justification. It's like, well, she's awesome. So she'll be able to handle it. It's fine. And then that's the teacher that gets burned out and leaves the profession. Um, So I think these are kinds of conversations that we need to be having and thinking about when we're creating master schedules, when we're opening positions, and when we're talking to our veteran teachers about who's going to get what position and things like that. Wow. Yes. Oh my gosh. As you were describing that the kind of equity of distribution of classes, I was thinking the other teachers, 
particularly, so I was a special education teacher. So the other special education teachers had similar workloads to me, but the general education teachers taught maybe two different preps. And so it was just like the discrepancy there between seven and two is nuts. And I never thought that, yeah, we should be having this conversation with those teachers, you know, as a school. So smart. (laughs) So as you've worked for, for so long with new teachers, I'm curious to know what has surprised you the most in, in working with that population of teachers. Yeah, I, um, I, a few things. Um, first of all, I love, love, obviously I love working with new teachers as I work with them, but I think some of the things that has really surprised me, it has to do with, um, preparation and how we structure it. And so one of them is, um, how much step-by-step support new teachers need, especially that summer, you know, I was going to see that summer before their first year teaching. Um, but I, I think it's actually first, second, third, fourth year teaching. I have this, I have an online course for new teachers that walks them step-by-step through preparing for their first day and for, for the year. And I have teachers taking that class sometimes with zero years of experience and sometimes with like 15 years of experience. And I, um, so what I'm saying is what surprises me is how much step-by-step support. I mean, like, okay, we know best practice is to backwards design grades. We know that we need need to start with assessment in mind. Great. But what does that look like? Like literally, what do you write on the piece of paper? You know, like when we're thinking about scaffolding for students, I think many times teacher prep programs talk about big ideas, which is great. Theory, which is great equity, fantastic, but we need, when are we going to get into the nitty gritties of like, okay, we're going to sit down. This is how you lesson plan. This is where you put this. These are the kinds of notes I do. Let's model that for a teacher in a sustainable way too. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is kind of, uh, kind of in conversation with that first one. And that is what was so striking to me was uh, this uh, one time I was giving a workshop. I, I'm used to giving workshops to like first, second, third year teachers. I was giving a workshop that I thought it was at a conference and I thought it was, I was going to get first through third year teachers. And as I was going, I realized something was off. And just in terms of the engagement and what I was seeing in, in, in the teacher's faces, and somehow at some point during that workshop, I discovered that almost everybody in the room was a pre-service teacher. And it was just this kind of big um, realization about when teachers, when is the right time for new teachers to receive different kinds of information? So yes, new teacher prep programs, a lot of times they may, and I'm not sure, but it seems to me that it many times they lack enough step-by-step support in creating lesson plans, those kinds of things. But at the same time, I have found that first through third year teachers are total sponges because they're so desperate to solve the problems that they're dealing with day in and day out. And pre-service teachers, understandably, are overloaded with information and they don't know what they're going to need. It's just like, okay, here's all this advice. Here's all this blah, blah, blah. And then they don't know what they're going to need when they teach. And so I think to me, what it suggests is that we need to be incorporating more hands-on, more, um, more experiences where teachers have pre-service teachers have autonomy in a classroom so they can actually have something to pin their learning to. 
um, and know what to look for when they are learning to be teachers. And then it also means that we need to be extending that, um, that hands-on workshops and side-by-side -side support for new teachers, those first through third year teachers, rather than just saying, here's all, there's, here's how you be a teacher. Okay, go do it. <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh. The research on job embedded support like that too is really positive, right? Like this is what teachers actually need is to be supported as they're doing this. So, right. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I love these things that you're talking about. And I want to know, I, I think so much of what you've already talked about, you've mentioned this a bit already is so tied to these ideas of justice and equity that we always talk about on the podcast. So I'm curious to know if you have anything to add from what you've said already around the importance of this work in that frame. Yeah, I think we've kind of, we've danced around a little bit, kind of talking about certain aspects, but just to kind of bring it home, if we think about who our teachers are teaching and who are veteran teachers going to, where are veteran teachers fleeing to, what kinds of schools, what kinds of grade levels, what kinds of workloads, where are they going and who, where, what positions are being opened up? We're talking about schools that maybe have lower income. We're talking about schools that have um, have higher levels of diversity or maybe um, are, have higher needs in terms of instructional needs. And if those are the positions opening up and those are the, those are the positions being filled by first or third year teachers, that's where all of our support needs to be. Um, and that's what is going to be creating these cycles of inequity every single year. Um, if we don't address and, and kind of put a plug to these teacher retention problems that we're seeing um, and, and, and things like that. I was going to say one other piece of that, and now I'm, I'm forgetting what I was going to say. But I mean, in a nutshell, to me, this work is not just about making new teachers' lives easier. Of course it is. But it's also about solving huge issues of inequity in our school systems across the country. Um, and conversations that we need to be having about how workloads and how um, positions and how master schedules are created and, um, and who's filling those positions and what kind of support we're giving them and what assumptions we're making about what should that experience look like for that teacher? What are we asking teachers to just accept um, and, and do because they're a good teacher and they wanna be a teacher and this is what they should be doing? Kind of like you're talking about like, okay, I wanna get a job. Um, I don't feel like I should be looking for a different kind of job. I don't think, feel like I should be advocating for myself um, because I think all teachers deserve a reasonable workload. And also if we want good teachers to stay in the profession and continue to grow and, and, and for our students to reap the benefits of that, then we need to be paying attention to, the, uh, paying attention to these kinds of things. So well said. I'm so glad that, that, we were able to kind of like wrap all that together because you're right. We kind of were talking about it in so many ways, but what you just said is absolutely it and, and why this work is so necessary. So thank you for naming that so clearly. And yeah. as we think about, um, you know, coming to a close of the episode and all of the great things that you have shared, I'm imagining a listener just kind of being like, okay, there's so much that I could be doing if I'm a leader to support educators. And if I'm a new teacher to kind of wrap my mind around some of these things or ways of thinking, ways of doing things that maybe I didn't learn in teacher prep school, because I think we should actually side note, I think we should start like our own teacher prep school because I think everything you're describing <laughs> be awesome. is like, yes, I wish this is what the school was like before I got to teaching. But as people are kind of hearing all this stuff, 
what is one thing if they were just kind of getting started? They're like, I like these ideas that you've been sharing. I want to take one next step to start building that momentum towards kind of living it out. What would that recommendation be? Yeah, um, I think, well, in all change, I really like to think of it in terms of think big, start small, be consistent. So um, I would, if you could, I always would recommend doing a mind dump, brain dump of all the different ways that you could be improving, maybe what you're doing yourself, what the school can be doing. Um, and, and then kind of picking one to start with from there. In terms of giving a little bit of direction, I think the first thing that's really, um, really important, a good place to start is to figure out where, where we can start taking things off of new teachers' plates. Um, so we can make space for all these things. So teachers can even, I, I have teachers that love our mastermind groups that drop out because they just have too much on their plate. And so they're making this choice to fly solo so that they can survive rather than have all this support that they can have. So that would be the first step. So teachers feel like they can accept help. Um, and then, and then I think too, a really easy way to make a shift um, that doesn't require more time and energy from you is to think about how you're talking to new teachers, how you're talking to them about the profession, um, about what's a reasonable workload for them to accept, um, and, and, and teach them boundary setting, um, and maybe even like steering. And when you're having, I'm just talking about conversations you would be having anyway with new teachers. How can we start steering new teachers to more student-centered strategies rather than strategies that are centering on them doing tons and tons of work? Um, and then of course, uh, and checking yourself, if you are prone to that badge of honor for working late into the night, those kinds of things, um, because those are culture shifts that we can all be responsible for making and they don't require any extra help and energy. And then of course, if you got more energy and time, take a look at that list I was talking about before and see which one would be reasonable for you to tackle first. Beautiful. I love it. And as, as a final kind of question that I, I love asking just for fun, I think everyone who comes on the podcast is just constantly growing and learning themselves. And so I'm curious to know what is something that you have been learning about lately? Yeah. So I'm really excited about this class I'm taking right now. It's called um, Playing Big, the Playing Big Facilitators course, I think is the name, but it's by um, Tara Moore. If you've ever read the book, Playing Big. Fantastic book, so powerful. Um, Tara Moore, she's a coach that helps women um, and leaders sideline their inner critic, amp up their own inner wisdom and tune into that and then play bigger in their lives, however that looks for them. So this course that I'm taking is about helping other women and other leaders do that. And I just find it so fascinating um, thinking about, especially since teaching is such a woman dominated industry, um, thinking about how different pressures and socializations and cultural expectations have been placed on women, how that translates into perhaps that workaholic um, culture and, and not maybe not um, stepping up and speaking up when they could be when they have so much wisdom and, and expertise to share and helping and just thinking about how to help teachers do that in their, in their buildings and, and play bigger. Wow. That sounds like an amazing book. I now need to read. <laughs> yes. 
definitely recommend. <laughs> that is great. And I'm sure people are going to be really sad that this episode is ending because they want to continue talking to you and learning from you. And so I'm curious to know, where would you send listeners who are interested in connecting, learning more about you, taking your course or joining your masterminds? Yeah, I think the central hub would be um, the Teacher Off Duty website. It's just teacheroffduty.com. That's my first website. That's kind of where there are links to everything. If you want to learn more about uh, the new Teacher Mastermind program, you can just go to newteachermasterminds.com. And you can find me on social media with um, through Teacher Off Duty handle on everything. And then um, if you wanted to learn more about how to shift mindset and challenge myths about supporting new teachers and concrete ideas about how to support new teachers. I have a freebie on the new teacher masterminds website that you can download for free um, about 10 ways to support new teachers. That sounds amazing. And I'm going to drop links to all those things into the show notes and the blog post for this episode. So if you're driving or running or something, don't worry about like writing these things down in the moment, you can totally grab them later. Um, But Jean, thank you so, so much for this really wise and brilliant conversation. Thank you, Lindsay. It was, it was, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show. So leaders like you will be more likely to find it to continue the conversation. You can head over to our time for teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries until next time. Leaders continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Mm -hmm.